Hello and welcome to the Artsy Podcast. I'm your host, Isaac Kaplan, joined this week by Associate Editor Abigail Kane. Hey, Isaac. And Deputy Editor Scott Indrasek. Hey, Isaac. So this week, we're going to be talking about some of the questions about modern art that you've never thought to ask, or maybe, you know, embarrassingly enough, you have thought to ask them, but but you're you're too afraid or you don't want to, you know ask the obvious question. Scott, you're going to you're going to kind of be in charge of asking all of these questions and then me, Abby, and and also you if you have anything, you know, you want to chip in. We're we're going to go one by one and we're going to kind of uh bang them out and answer them for you. So so by the end of this, all your questions should be answered. Yeah, you'll never have to take an art history class again. Yes. <laughs> so be it. This is it. It's yeah, the cheapest, 30 minutes. Cheapest curriculum. This is free. an accredited art history degree <laughs> you're getting by listening to this podcast. All right, Scott, why don't you take it away? First question is based around an article you wrote, Isaac, about a year ago, which was simply asking the question, what makes an abstract expressionist painting good? For this article, I put that question to both an art historian and actually someone who worked at an auction house to kind of get a market perspective because certain Rothkos are worth more than other Rothkos and why. And one thing that I learned from the professor was that this is a really personal question, obviously. And I think that's, you know, most of us kind of intrinsically realize that, but it's about appealing to your emotions, about appealing to to sort of getting you into a a sort of deep focus. And this question of whether or not it's good really depends on whether or not you're captivated by it or or if it it grabs you. And I know that's kind of a cop-out, like it's good if you like it, but I think that's more true of, of abstract expressionist paintings and maybe more figurative work. It's kind of nice. That's, that's kind of a very democratic way of looking at it, you know, in that everyone will be able to have their own subjective opinion as to what quality is like. But that also seems not in line with how abstract expressionist paintings were judged during the time when they were being made, which was seemed like very, you know, coming from like uh, Clement Greenberg, like very, it was like a, like a, the standards of what made a abex painting good or not were like very particular. I mean, I don't want to offend anyone, but I personally find formalism super boring as like a way to analyze a painting. And that's kind of what the main criteria for a long time of abex kind of was, you know, Clement Greenberg coming along and being like, he was an art historian being like, oh, you know, is this painting flat enough? Well, why should I care if a painting is flat or not? And I yeah, think it's we, almost like someone's, you're like a, a product inspector or something, you know, yeah. you're like, okay, this checks out, this is hitting these boxes and doing what the, the genre should be doing, which is kind of boring. I saw a show at MoMA, I guess it was like, like six months ago, maybe, Making Space. It was, it was a show drawn entirely from the MoMA's collection, but it was all women artists. And one of the rooms was just abstract expressionists, basically, um, but it was all women, which obviously those works weren't shown when they were made. Um, even though a lot of them were married to like the male abstract expressionists we all know today, like de Kooning and, and Pollock. And it's interesting because the ones that I found most compelling really didn't feel like the, the abstract expressionist works that everyone knows and loves today. Like I loved this Alma Thomas work that was really small. I mean, it was like maybe a couple feet wide, like a foot, foot tall. And it was like three pieces of cardboard stapled together with like the classic like Alma yeah. Thomas colors and, and kind of like dashed lines. I think the reason I liked it so much was because it didn't feel flat and formal. Like I could tell where it came from. I could see the materials. I could see the staples. I could see like some masking tape in there. You, you were talking about this MoMA show that kind of showcased works that were in the MoMA collection by women and overlooked artists who were painting abstract expressionism, which is ostensibly a style that excludes the outside world and is just about what appears on the canvas. But obviously, we all know that that never happens in in, in, a, in a sort of a real way because 
the real world creeps in in terms of who's allowed to like walk into a museum, whose work is taken seriously. So, you know, you have right. This- the real world decided that the only abstract expressionists that were going to get shown or make any money were all white men. Coincidence. So. It's only because their paintings were the most flat. Like I don't, yeah. Right. And, and one last thing that I kind of want, want to mention is that, you know, I think we, we were talking about how easy it is to sort of say, the abstract expressionist paintings that are good are the ones that hit you on an emotional level. But I often find that when I do go to see shows of abstract expressionism, which isn't super often, it a lot of the time it's like, here's 150 works, 200 works even, and there's so many that to feel like you've got your money's worth, most people or a lot of people, uh, I would wager, try and see them all really quickly, which I think is a flaw of a lot of big blockbuster exhibitions that it's just like, I can't spend any time with any of these works at all. You hate big, you hate big shows. Give me like an intimate, like, like two room exhibition. That's great. That's all I want. A lot of the people you spoke to for your piece, Isaac, really stressed, you know, you need to take time with these works. You need to, first of all, you need to see them in person, not on your computer or on your phone or something like this. And you know, you really need to let things unfold in front of your eyes. Um, in a way that a 150 work show would kind of negate mm-hmm. unless you're going to pick three works yeah. and kind of really chill out in front of them. Okay. Moving on from abstract expressionism, uh, to another piece you wrote back in the olden days of 2016, Isaac, which was titled, if you don't understand conceptual art, it's not your fault. So what did you learn from that piece and how, you know, first of all, how can we define conceptual art and why shouldn't people feel bad if they just don't get it? The definition that I got from Andrew Wilson, who is a curator at the Tate, was that conceptual art isn't a style. It's more a set of strategies. and mm, Almost a conceptual It is a conceptual answer. But essentially, there is kind of a straightforward, handy definition or explanation of what conceptual art is. It might cause more questions than answers in some ways, but it's, you know, Solowit. Uh, wrote this text, Paragraphs on Conceptual Art, which was published in Art Forum in 1967. And he essentially said that conceptual art is uh, when the idea or the concept is the most important part of the work, um, to the point where the actual object itself is almost perfunctory or not important. What caused me to kind of investigate this subject was what I find to be a continuing problem in the art world where you have a situation or, or works of art that are uh, very head scratching or, or cause you to be confused and uh, in a way that sort of makes you feel dumb. Um, and everyone's like, oh, it's just conceptual art. You know, it, it, you have to just like think more about it. And it kind of masks maybe what is actually a bad work of art. So this this phrase conceptual art applies to so much. I just wanted to unpack it and kind of give give people like a framework for understanding it and how also how curators kind of think about it and, and present it. Well, yeah, I mean, I thought one of the interesting points from that article too is just so many people now use that phrase conceptual mm-hmm. art and so many people claim it as a label for what they're doing. Um, like I think you had Shia LaBeouf in there as one of the examples, but I mean, it's kind of like, it's like rocket science also is like another one of those th- things where people just like use rocket science as a label of something part yeah. <laughs> where it's like conceptual art is just this like label for something. It's like, Oh, I don't understand it. And it's weird. It must yeah. be conceptual art. Yeah. The way it's taught in art, cl- art history classes as like an introduction to it is often like really boring. Like, you know, you have the, this kind of classic textbook example is Joseph Kasuth one in three chairs, which is, you know, 
uh, it's a physical chair, it's a picture of a chair, and it's the dic- dictionary definition of a chair, and it's like kind of like the galaxy brain meme, you know, <laughs> kind of it's like, oh wow, you've really taken a step back. And and I get, you know, it is obviously that that's a that's an important step in in the development of art history. I, I think it is sort of really important to to talk about that, but. I understand why that's kind of alienating to people because it doesn't often hit you on an emotional level, right? Like, yeah, it's a little cold, but sorry, it's also it, most of the works you discuss. I mean, if people think of conceptual art as being impenetrable or really difficult to understand, most of these works are actually pretty simple, yeah. almost like ridiculously simple yeah. like that work. And I think now looking back on them, they can seem a little like stupid or, or like overly simplistic. Note, kind of. Yeah, mm-hmm. one note. But like a joke almost. Yeah. And I, actually rereading the piece again, I was kind of reminded why I really love the contemporary artist Martin Creed so much because mm-hmm. he's someone who, I mean, for anyone who doesn't know him, he's most famous as a guy who had, had the piece that was called like a light switching on and off many times in a room. That's not the title, but it's close enough. Um, and I, I could picture it. The though. piece itself was just a light going on and off in a room over and over again, which is a kind of thing that, you know, makes people really angry to see because they kind of feel cheated, mm-hmm. you know, and, but Martin Creed's a very funny conceptual artist where obviously that feeling of kind of messing around with people's expectations or making them feel cheated is kind of built into the work in a way. Yeah. Um, or he'll have other works that are just like a crumpled up piece of paper on a plinth. What's also so interesting about conceptual art and that, and that, you know, the work that you're talking about there with Martin Creed and also you look at someone like John Baldessari too, is like, it's it's interesting because I think what alienates people or what makes people mad, as you said, is simultaneously you you have artwork that is really straightforward in some ways, but also is making claims to a kind of erudite art historical reference. And that kind of conjunction can cause, uh, I think, a sort of it can rub people the wrong way, but on some level, especially, you know, who's someone I talk about in the piece, John Baldessari, turns to photography because it was a super democratic and ubiquitous medium. And Martin Creed is using a, a light bulb turning on and off in a room, which is something everyone has done thousands of times over the course of their life and putting it in an art in an art context. So in some way, conceptual art is extremely relatable and familiar. And and yeah, it, it can be really funny. John Baldessari like makes fun of conceptual art. I love John Baldessari. He's just good. He's just a funny guy. Yeah. So it's he, also interesting too. I I mean I wonder too, like we're all art art writers. And I do sometimes feel like art writers have a certain fondness for conceptual art because it works so well on the page because it really is more about like the description of the mm. thing than seeing the mm. thing. It's like a lot of conceptual artworks you're like, not much to see here. Like, well, and a lot of it is very language based too, or involves, mm-hmm. you know, I mean the piece you were mentioning with the, the chair and the dictionary def- definition, it literally is about an object and then the language used to describe mm-hmm. that object right next to it. So it is very wordy in a lot of ways. Yeah. yeah. Sometimes though, I think that is true. It's, it, I do like writing about conceptual art because it is so much about the idea and you don't even need to, I mean, you almost need, don't even need to do a visual analysis a lot of the time, but other times the reverse is true where like someone will have a work of art where it's like these slugs were imported from France and that's meant to show like globalization and labor and food and i'm like uh i don't like i'm repeating what you're saying but i don't really know if i agree with that or or like can even unpack that i mean it is a pet peeve of mine i mean i just hate it when art is kind of vapid and empty but makes itself seem really complicated and difficult because it sort of like tangentially engages in really deep themes but then makes inexplicability like a bonus when obviously like, no, your art should be intelligible and it should actually be intelligible to most people. 
that doesn't mean that you need to not deal with complicated themes or or difficult subjects, but it it does mean that you need to like have something speak on a lot of different registers. And I get that's a challenge. And I'm being the classic critic who's like, uh, I can't do that, but I want you to do that. Uh, but I still I still think I'll, I'll die on this hill. I, st- I stand by that. I just think it's like an easy mask to use. You know, like mm. I made a work of art that's not that interesting, but because I'm calling it conceptual, you just don't understand it. And that's why you yeah. don't like it. And it's like good conceptual art. I do really like yeah. and I think is worthy of that title. I think another point to make, too, I mean, in talking about this or in talking about abstract expressionism, I feel like a lot of people who maybe don't, you know, don't consider themselves huge art aficionados, but maybe go to a museum a couple times a year. The kind of people that see things they don't like in a museum and they get really mad about it. Like, why is this here? Yeah. Like, I don't think anyone in the world is going to go to one museum and, and like everything that you yeah. see. And you shouldn't expect yourself to. I mean, that would be a kind of a strange position to be in. Like, you should be going to a museum and saying, eh, actually, I think that's kind of a waste of time. Yeah. And I like, you know, it, it's more a matter of, yeah, I don't think you have to go to any museum in the history of the world and think that if you don't understand something that it means the problem is with you or that you're dumb. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, you can certainly exercise your taste in that regard. There's nothing forcing you to like conceptual art yeah. or abstract expressions or I, anything. When you come from an art history background, because like your first, I feel like for me, I also studied art history and my like first real exposure to a lot of art stuff is like in art history 101. And it's like those works, you kind of feel like you do have to like them because they are the seminal works. Like if you don't like them, then you don't like the foundation of what all this stuff is built on. Mm-hmm. Like how could you like any of it? And also no one tells you in art history 101 that there's actually so many different parallel art histories and stories going on, you know, simultaneously to the one that you're you're being taught. Speaking of things you might see in a museum and feel conflicted about and maybe love, maybe hate, uh, let's talk about monochrome painting, which is a topic that uh, one of our writers, Alina Cohen, dug into a couple weeks ago on Artsy. Monochrome painting is pretty much what it sounds like. It's paintings that have a single hue involved. They might be totally flat white, like the works of Robert Ryman, or more or less all black, like uh, paintings by Ad Reinhardt. Definitely the kind of painting that, you know, someone could see in a museum and say, give me a break. That's literally just the color white. It's almost the same color as the wall. What skill is involved there? What anything is involved there? So um, maybe we can talk a little bit about monochromes. How do you guys feel about them? I don't actually think I've ever seen an exhibition dedicated to monochrome art. No, they, I feel like they they just are like in the permanent collection. They yeah. come along as like one step in a development. I guess I've always kind of thought about them in that way, like less on works of art in their own term and more as like, okay, this is a step towards thinking about art in a different way. Mm-hmm. Well, it's interesting since we were just talking about conceptual art, it's sort of, I mean, I feel like monochromes are essentially and this is something Alina gets to in the piece, like conceptual painting, basically, like that it's, yes, it's an object that you're meant to look at and think about and kind of see how the light hits and all these things, but it's also sort of like a painting that's an idea, which is that, you know, you're just working with one color, or in the case of Ad Reinhardt, it was really, I'm going to make these black paintings, and this is going to, you know, like people have said over and over again, this is going to kill painting, this is the terminal point, like, uh, this is the logical, like after this, no one will make any paintings, because what else could you do after these amazing black paintings? I know that's such an interesting thing, too, because that also kind of pops up in conceptual art where it's this idea of like we're going to move value away from the object and into some conceptual sphere that can't be owned or like possessed or anyone can execute a soloit series of instructions on their own wall. I mean, it's obviously so much more complicated than that. But you see sort of something, a similar thing happening here, which is kind of like a grand gesture or, or theoretical attempt to kind of destroy an artistic movement or bring it to its terminus which is 
I don't know how, like, if seriously they thought that this would actually occur, but it's interesting because I don't really think anyone today talks about art in those terms. Like, no one says painting is dead in any kind of, with any kind of seriousness. People say art criticism is dead. That's the new, that's the new death. What? <laughs> what? That's like every title of every panel oh, yeah, for like that's three true. Three well, years, because they, they mean like like the Clement Greenberg like I gatekeeper yeah. Art criticism yeah, yeah it definitely seems like that that kind of level of self seriousness is gone or something mm-hmm. I mean I just wanted to quote one bit from Molina's piece because I think it's really kind of concise and excellent she she had said the history of monochromes is full of predominantly male characters who like to undermine other artists' achievements and believe they got paintings last laugh which seems like yeah, we don't really have... There's still ego in the art world, but maybe not in that way that, that someone is really going to kill off a genre or do the final thing that you can do. I wrote a story about about one moment kind of like this, which actually... So this is Robert Rauschenberg as a young man. He like approaches Willem de Kooning and he's like, excuse me, I like a painting because I want... Or sorry, not a painting. I want a drawing because I want to erase it. And de Kooning's kind of mad and he's like, I guess if this is like really what you want to do. So he does, and it ends up being the Erased de Kooning, which is now on display in SFMOMA, which is basically a blank sheet of paper, a little smudged, and you know, it's got a little label on it that just says Erased de Kooning in this nice gold frame. And Rauschenberg actually was never thinking about it, like, you know, this is the end of an era. I'm, like, killing off this previous generation of abstract expressionists and, like, bringing about this new movement of, you know, pop artists. Um, but it, it has been, like, how it's... That's how, that's how it's been... Uh, like seen by a lot of art art historians. But it's interesting too, because I know some of the artists in this piece, like their pieces do sort of appear one color, but they are really thinking about texture and brushstroke and like that really intense act of looking. Like it seems like nothing's there, but you then you look longer and there is something there, which is not what Rauschenberg's thing was. But that's another aspect. Yeah, well, Ryman, for instance, I think some of the people with Pace Gallery that Alina spoke to about Ryman were kind of very adamant saying, no, he's not a monochrome painter. There's not just one white here. There's many whites. Uh, one of them said, you know, he's painting light, not just one color, mm. which, you know, I'm willing to accept. But. Yeah, it's interesting because it's one of those situations where like seeing a work of art on the computer is so, Abby, you were making this point yesterday. It's just like really difficult to replicate that experience. Of- we talked about that in relationship to the Michelle Obama portrait mm. by Amy Sherald, which is apparently so different in, in person is. than it is in, in reproductions. Yeah. But I mean, like that's, you know, that's like threefold, fourfold, whatever with a black painting yeah i forget who it was who who said this actually scott i remember hearing this from an artist who who you interviewed while i was and, and i was transcribing your interview with this artist while i was your intern at art and it blew in art intro i think it was <laughs> wow full going there? At mo- okay. it was modern painters yeah and i remember this artist who i can't remember now who they were they were talking about how they were taught that mondrian paintings were perfect and that is how you're kind of taught about them that they're like this this kind of total domination of form by the artist and these like very aesthetically complete and and perfect utopian objects and then this artist saw them in real life and noticed how cracked and broken the surface was and that was a moment where he kind of questioned the way in which these things are are historicized because in the in, in the interest of making things a simpler story uh that painting isn't two shades of white it's monochrome you know often some of the important nuance uh, around a work, and honestly, maybe what makes it more interesting is lost. All right, so now I thought we could dive into another topic that Isaac recently explored. This is the Isaac podcast. Yeah, this it's is the really Isaac the Isaac podcast. show. Uh, you're a resident expert, and it's lucky you're here. Resident expert in dumb questions. So th- uh, this, this piece, <laughs> <I'm burned. laughs> this piece looked at how do you know whether 
an abstract painting is hanging in the right way in a museum, which I think is interesting because we're talking so much about experts at museums and their opinions, which are really, you know, in, you know, comp you assume that experts are experts, let's say, but, and this is an important topic because it shows that even experts can make really dumb mistakes, like hanging a work of art by a famous painter completely upside down for decades, let's say. So maybe you can tell yeah. us a little bit about what you found. There were three examples in this piece, which Abby, you edited. Uh, to be fair, amazingly. actually, I feel bad that I roasted you. I suggested this yeah. piece what as a hell? piece to be written. So. <laughs> you're playing the long con. You're like, I'm just going to roast him on a podcast. Yeah. So anyway, this, this piece kind of looked at three examples, the, the three archetypes of hanging a painting incorrectly. The first one is just like someone screws up and the painting is upside down on the wall. But actually, if you look at the catalog, it's the right way round. And then it's just requires someone, which is what happened in this, this case of this Matisse painting that was hung in, in the, the 60s, right? In the 60s in the, Mo in, in the MoMA. The next example is at the Jewish Museum. It was a Morris Lewis painting. And this is kind of the other thing where it's actually, sometimes it takes a lot of research to determine which way a work was hung and this this one actually sparked the piece because this happened like this happened just a few months ago yeah it was it was ahead of the jewish museum did a major super awesome rehang of their entire collection and as part of that they researched uh, all of the works in it so this was a morris lewis painting that was untitled originally but they realized in the course of their research that actually this un ostensibly untitled painting when turned around resembled a different Morris Lewis painting that no one really knew where it was t titled uh, man reaching for a star. And it clicked right away when they flipped around, they were like, Oh wait, this is man reaching for a star because it looked like that once they had turned it upside down. And then the final example that I cite in the piece is this Rothko, these two Rothkos that are at the Tate where it's really unclear as to which way. Well, some people think it's clear. Some people don't, but basically the consensus is that it's, it's, you know, reasonable people could probably make arguments about which way these paintings were supposed to hang. Isn't one of the things you found, Isaac, in the in the case of Rothko, that it was almost like he, not that he didn't care which way the paintings were hung, but that there was some flexibility, like sort of up to whoever was hanging it, if you wanted to do it horizontally or vertically oriented, or is that, am I making that up? Yeah, well, uh, ostensibly, it was kind of hard to piece this one together, but the case is that he donated these works to the Tate, um, shortly before he committed suicide, and they were never shown while he was alive. And that's kind of like the gold standard of which way a work is supposed to be hung. So like if the artist is alive and there's a photo of an exhibition mounted while they were alive, then everyone is like, okay, that's the way this work is supposed to be hung because otherwise the artist would have gotten mad. So there was no instance of that in in this for, for these Rothko paintings. Well, the Tate that now owns them, like they, they say that Rothko said, they said that they could be whole yeah they were supposed to be hung vertically yeah and there was some question over that based off where the artist's signature was um and they actually had flip-flopped several times while at the tate they've been hung both ways and i think the consensus is that you know there there's some this is basically the way that the tate thinks is the correct way but there were times where it didn't think this way um and it's not like so obviously a factual error that they that they made up it, it it's just that they're thinking on the evidence uh, has changed over that time. I think the takeaway here is that if you're an artist, just put arrows on the back of the painting showing yeah. which way is up. It's just an easy actually fix. write on the painting this, this, way this way up. up. This way up, but write it upside down. So it's really confusing for everyone. <laughs> because otherwise, you know, conceptual. You, you get the tragedy of someone like uh, the painter George Basilitz, whose paintings have been hanging upside down for his whole career. Scott, it turns out you have a personal uh, encounter with, with a, a hanging upside down. 
Yeah, yeah. So uh, this is a short but shameless self-promotion. I run a, like a gallery out of my apartment with my wife called Teen Party. And the uh, first show we did was with Peter Halley. So we were really excited and kind of intimidated uh, about being able to work with someone who's like that well-known in kind of a really back of our apartment in, in Brooklyn situation. So it was a painting from 1981. And uh, if anyone's not familiar with his work, it's fairly abstract, kind of like these cells and grid looking geometric forms. And his assistant came over to install the work and everything went well, thought it looked great. I'm taking pictures in the room. You know, uh, the painting was, was vertically oriented. It kind of looked almost like an apartment building. So I was getting really into that. I was going outside in our backyard, shooting it through the window because the way it was oriented kind of mirrored the window. I was like really into it looking like an apartment building. So I text Peter images and I said, super excited, all good to go. And he writes back and he says, looks great, except um, my assistant installed it sideways. It's supposed <laughs> to be like not that way, which I felt very embarrassed about until I realized like I, I had no way of yeah. knowing how it was supposed to go and it looked nice that way. So assistant comes back, you know, re reinstalls it the correct way, no longer looks like an apartment building, which I was a little bit sad by. It was one of these instances where, you know, Obviously, you want to honor the artist's uh, intent, but, you know, it kind of worked either way in some ways. If a work is hung one way for 20 years or something, and then all of a sudden someone's like, oh, no, this was upside down. You know, the Jewish Museum case, I think, is a great one where it actually does matter because it was kind of a figurative work that sort of changed the way things looked. But with an abstract work, I, I, I don't know. Like, Well, I, I don't think it's not that it doesn't matter, but it, it did make me laugh, too, because I was even just thinking the way like the difference between how artists think about their own work versus the way like art professionals do. And I feel like the latter have a certain mm. seriousness that artists themselves might not have. Like you go to an artist's studio, they have a painting in the corner that's just kind of like leaning against the wall. They're talking about the texture. They're feeling the surface. They maybe say, hey, give it a feel. Like all these things you, if you were an art professional, you'd be freaking out. Like you don't <laughs> do that. You don't touch the painting. You don't do this. And I kind of like thinking about these artists. Well, not I don't like thinking about dead artists, but like thinking about these artists who are no longer with us, let's say. <laughs> And meanwhile, you know, all of these museum professionals are doing extensive research yeah. to get to the bottom of which way this painting would be hung. I, I just picture the artists themselves, like wherever they are now, kind of like getting a good laugh out of that much uh, energy being expended on this kind of, kind of minor question, but also kind of an important question. Now that we've answered all of your questions... Um, Every single one. No one else can ever ask an art history question again. Well, actually, if you have more art history questions, email them to us. Yeah, we're at podcast at artsy.net. Yes. It is Maybe my, we'll do it again. It is literally my job to answer some of these. But Abby, for White Wine, where are you going to be uh, checking out in the art world this week? So, um, as listeners will recall, I said I was going to the Grant Wood show and I followed through. I went uh, at the Whitney. Um, it's at the Whitney right now. And I went last weekend and I loved it. It was so good. Um, what was your favorite thing about it? I just really think like Grant Wood is sort of this one hit wonder. He has American Gothic. That's what everybody knows. I just really don't think that's his greatest work. I mean, it's not, it's an interesting work. Sure. But like, even in that, well, first of all, his style changes a lot throughout his life. And I think that that transition is fascinating to behold. Like he starts out as this like arts and crafts guy. And in the first room he did, he did a bunch of like actual like interior decoration stuff and one thing is like this chandelier is corn cob chandelier so it's like it looks like a bunch of corn cob plants like with little corn cobs is like the sconces for the lights it's just so hokey so kitschy and that was like what he did in the first years of his like career and then he like moves on to these sort of r portraits that kind of look like like um 
American Gothic, but there's one in there that I think is even way better than American Gothic. It's his assistant, his young like painting assistant, who's like um, standing against this like brilliant blue background. And there's these like two like boys, like nude boys in the background, like about to jump into the river. And it's very like evocative. The colors are awesome. And it feels like I mean, because he was a he was a closeted homosexual. So you also feel like a lot of that interesting subtext in there. So anyway, I thought that was a better work than American Gothic in the same room. And all the rest of his stuff is great, too. We're really attacking the canon today. We're like, Abex, <laughs> boring, minimalism, colors, Grant Wood's American Gothic sucks. But the rest of his stuff is great. Go see the show. I loved it. I loved it. Yeah, I think uh, it, it seems like a lot weirder of a show than most people would assume like the, the pieces I've seen just with a lot of people, a lot of artists I wouldn't expect to visit the show have been like posting on Instagram and like really into it and kind of uh, just really into how strange a lot of the works are. All right, Scott, while you got the, while you have the floor, why don't you tell us where you're going to be headed? Uh, I'm going to check out this show uh, by, it's, a, it's kind of a survey of Leon Golub that's happening at the Met Breuer. Uh, Golub was a, like a very political artist who made work about, very depressing topics like, you know, war and torture and other pleasant things. But um, it, it's they're really impactful, very like raw paintings. A lot of them are just on like unstretched canvas. It's kind of tacked to the wall and they're figurative. But um, yeah, it just, you know, if you're if you really want to see like kind of the, the most visceral representation of like war and torture, I'm not really selling this. But if you're in that mo- mood, uh, Leon Golub is your guy. What are you going to go see, Isaac? Scott, thank you so much for asking me. Appreciate it. <laughs> There's so much to see. I want to see the Grant Wood show at the Whitney, but Abby took that one from me. So uh, I will never see it. No, I'll just go. But I'll give you another one that I'm also excited to check out. Uh, it's it's Like Life, Sculpture, Color, and the Body at the Met Breuer, which is uh, a collection of basically depictions of the human form from over 700 years of art history. I like these sort of really thematic exhibitions that just bring together really diverse stuff um, from totally unrelated parts of art history and like force you to make connections that are super ahistorical and kind of maybe wrong in some ways, but um, are, are fun and imaginative and kind of break through the kind of linear narrative of how art progresses and stuff like this. So, Well, I, some of them aren't even like artworks in the traditional sense like no the reason i know about this is because we ran a story about it a while back but they have a anatomical venus there which is this really weird kind of waxwork thing that like for a while in like i think the 1600s they were like we, we don't need to dissect human bodies anymore we're just going to make like really accurate versions of human bodies in wax and then just let the doctors look at those but they made them look like beautiful women at the same time so you can like kind of like open the door of these like beautiful women's like stomachs and then see all their intestines and stuff it's like simultaneous i mean it's so weird so macabre that's so strange yeah and they have one they're most of them are in italy normally so it's well this is also the met Breuer, so it's 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 the best date destination ever between this and leon Golub. <laughs> yeah it could be like... the most disturbing date you'll ever have at the met Breuer. <laughs> <laughs> well you heard it for your first folks take your dates to the met Breuer for some <laughs> for some really romantic uh war and and for human sure. anatomy <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, that's all we have time for this week. Thank you so much for listening. If you have any uh, questions, feedback for us, we'd love to hear from you. Shoot us an email, podcast at artsy.net. And if you haven't done it already, we always love it when you guys leave feedback on Apple Podcasts because that helps other people find the show. Rate or subscribe. Our producer this week, Louis Sansano. 
with help from Surya Tubak, our fantastic intern. All right, see you next time.